Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, episode 43 on Shirley Jackson. I'm J.F. Martel. Just a few remarks before we start. Shirley Jackson was born in San Francisco in 1916, but lived in New England for much of her life. She was a prolific author, publishing six novels and dozens of short stories before her death in 1965. Her most famous works are, without a doubt, The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House. In our conversation, we compare her to David Lynch and briefly to H.P. Lovecraft, but another author we could have mentioned is Edgar Allan Poe. More than any other American writer I've had the fortune to read, Shirley Jackson exemplifies the kind of effortless dread that Poe innovated in English literature. But this isn't to take anything away from Jackson's undeniable singularity. Her work confronts us, not with an ordinary world in which weird things happen, with a weird world in which any notion of ordinariness ultimately proves to be a veil we use to blind ourselves to what's actually going on. The conversation you're about to hear focuses on two of Jackson's shorter works, the aforementioned Lottery, which I first encountered in a book on writing decades ago but only read in earnest recently, and The Summer People, a subtle example of weird fiction at its chilling and mind-opening best. This ended up being one of those wide-ranging conversations whose end point neither Phil nor I could predict, and those are a lot of fun to record. Hopefully they make for good listening, too. Enjoy the show. Patreon motherfuckers, why aren't you joining? Is that is that that's her pitch? <laughs> that's. Uh, I wonder where we'll be at by the time this comes out. Mm. We shall see. I'm hoping we got fat stacks. Um, let's pretend that by the time this comes out, we'll have reached 300 followers. Wow, ambitious. Yeah, let's pretend, and then we'll do it. It's, it's like a working. And I'm wearing a pimp hat, and I've got like a gold-headed cane. You're already wearing them, so I guess you got those on your credit card, yeah. I'm pretty sure that the purple lowrider caddy that I bought is going to be paid for by the time that this episode airs. Pays for itself. Yeah. You know, it's part, <laughs> it's part of my image. Like, you got to spend money to make money. Exactly. I've been reading, you know, this in books that tell you how to make money. Actually, that would be an interesting thing to do a show about, like those Secrets to Success books. There's this whole area of magic that I've spent no time thinking about. Mitch Horowitz, or Horowitz, is really into it. Uh, yeah. The power of positive thinking, kind of success magic, like wealth magic. They used to call it the new thought, right, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that shit is interesting to me because it's such a fine line between something that's straight up a magic manual, like a, a book that's explicitly framed 
as, yeah, here's a kind of magic. And stuff that's just going to appear in the business section of the paperback seller at your local airport. Yeah, it's our equivalent of what used to be called hedge magic or folk magic. Yeah. It also occupies an interesting place or gray zone between magic and prayer. Yeah, true. Which are already connected, obviously. Um, In fact, one could argue that prayer is a form of magic because a lot of those books take a kind of religious angle. Even if they end up calling God something like the universe, the universe will give you what you want if you ask for it. Right. But some of them are, are explicitly Christian. One that Mitch Horowitz is really into, I think, I can't remember the name of the guy, but he was a pastor, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I haven't done much research in it, but yeah, that would be interesting. We could do a, a guided reading of The Secret. <laughs> oh, that would be kind of cool. And then, and kind of a twofer, we'd have a good topic for a show, plus we then would know The Secret. Yeah, I can't believe there's a book out there with the secret in it, and I've never bothered to read it. It just goes to show. I know. goes to show how we self-sabotage. I mean, shit, you of all people, I can imagine a book with the word secret crudely written in Sharpie on the cover, tied to a string, Mm -hmm. and there's a box on a stick over (laughs) the book. And this is is how you would trap JF in the wild. That's how my wife caught me. (laughs) (laughs) If <laughs> you open up the book, you're like, shit, there's nothing written in it. Funk box comes down around you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I've never read The Secret. It just reeked of bullshit <laughs> right from the start for me. But I used to read, you know, when I was younger, I used to read the works of a guy named Stuart Wilde. Do you know this guy? No. He wrote a bunch of New Age books in the 90s. One was called The Secret to Making Money as Having Some, <laughs> which sounds funny in retrospect. But basically, it was like, act rich and you'll become rich kind of thing. But that's why I bought the lowrider purple caddy. Right, exactly, yeah. And he wrote a bunch of books. And I, I looked him up a few years ago because he was a pretty... He kind of marketed himself as the maverick outlier in that scene. Like, one of his exercises was, don't say thank you for two weeks. Stop thinking you owe people something. So when somebody opens the door for you, just nod and move on. But he'd also have cool exercises in his books, like uh, how to make yourself invisible in a shopping mall. Like wear this type of clothing, these shades, and walk and look at a point like 10 feet in front of you. And he had this technique, which I actually tried and walked around the Rito Center in Ottawa, invisible. I don't know Did if it work? It, no, I don't know, because one of the rules was you can't look at people. So. <laughs> So, yeah, it seemed to work. It reminds me of, like, how little kids play hide-and-seek when they don't quite understand it. Right, exactly. (laughs) I was probably standing in in a corner, like, totally in plain sight, but they figure if they can't see you, you can't see them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was was probably followed by three security guards everywhere I went, thinking I looked uh, really, like, thinking I was invisible, but just looking suspicious and weird. Um, I heard a story about Aleister Crowley, which I'm sure is... Uh, Actually, I'm not sure it's apocryphal because that is one guy whose life is stranger than fiction. But he believed, apparently, he knew certain techniques that would make him literally invisible. The story I heard is that he was at some gathering where he was naked, except there was like, I don't know, like a, a butterfly ornament over his genitals. And other than that, he's just like totally naked. And the person telling the story was just sort of like, anybody notice that? guy over there and they're like <laughs> and they're like Shh, it's alistair he thinks he's invisible <laughs> uh, 
that's not that's not <laughs> I don't apocryphal. Know if it's true, but I it's hope true. it's true. It's absolutely true. I mean, who could actually succeed in achieving invisibility without having one or two mishaps of that sort? <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, actually, in a sense, that's the kind of thing where you'd be like, hey, man, that's a magical result. You got an entire room to conspire to treat you as if you're invisible. Yeah. <laughs> it worked. Close yeah. enough. Yeah. Shaping, what is it? You know, shaping reality and conformity with will. I mean, he wanted to feel invisible and he got yeah. to be invisible. In fact, yeah, naked people tend to become invisible because nobody looks in their direction. Yeah. Um, so what I'm really saying is that you should join up for our Patreon. Yeah. That's really the point that exactly. we're trying to make here. This is the sort of conversation we have regularly on Patreon. Yeah, the Patreon conversations actually tend to be a little bit more unbuttoned, I think. Mm. Too hot for weird studies. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, before we move on, because I mentioned Stuart Weil, I just wanted to mention, just to close that parenthesis, that a couple of years ago I looked him up, and in the 90s he'd been this wealthy, successful New Age guru. And when I last looked him up, he was an absolutely paranoid, crazed lunatic who was writing about the greys and he was being uh, hounded by demons and and all kinds of the things. least surprising denouement of any story and then ever. i heard about him a year or two late after that and he was he had perished he had died oh so word to the wise yeah don't try this magic shit i mean it's true actually that there's a surprising number of people who seem to go stark staring insane from fooling around with these things. There's just something about like kind of realizing you're like, oh, wait, I have much greater control over reality than I thought I did, which is, I think, generally true, even if you don't believe for a moment in the possibility of like eldritch powers, like mental powers to change reality. It's nevertheless true that even within a purely materialistic universe, we all have far more ability to intervene yeah. in our reality than we think. That it's incredible how many actions we screen from our conscious awareness just by sort of saying, well, I can't possibly do that. You know, and it can be sort of like, well, I can't possibly go to a faculty meeting wearing jeans or whatever. And it's just like, well, have you ever tried? Yeah. You know, there's a certain kind of quote unquote magic, which is really just sort of like, you know, psyching yourself into a different mode of life where you just start trying to do all those things you've been telling yourself all along, maybe without even being aware of it, that you can't do. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, shit, this is actually really easy. But then you can really let that idea run away with you and end up being a little mad. Yeah, I think. yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a great way of putting it. In fact, maybe that's all magic really does. <laughs> I mean, we, we both acknowledge that there are bizarre effects and there are questions that remain unanswered with regard to what magic can actually accomplish yeah. in its interactions with the physical world, etc. But... I think one of the main things it does is to show you that your options are much uh, more varied than you would think. Yeah. That you can go to work wearing just jeans and get away with it. Yeah. Um, or in my case, you can podcast with no pants for a year. <laughs> but speaking of people kind of losing it in their later years, you know, one sad or tragic example of that is Shirley Jackson. Is that a fact? I actually know next to nothing about her life, but I intend on learning more about her life because apparently there's an excellent biography of hers that just came out recently, and my wife has been telling me I should read it, that it's up my alley. But I haven't so much as uh, cracked the cover on that thing. So yeah. what happened? My source is Wikipedia. <laughs> I haven't read that book either. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but yeah. apparently... That, un that, that unimpeachable source so beloved of our undergraduates. Yeah, right. 
yeah, she ended up being just anxiety ridden, depressed, just in a bad place in her later years. She struggled with weight her whole life. She had, I guess, image issues, that sort of thing. And she had a, a kind of rough marriage. If Wikipedia is to be trusted, she was married to what's his name? His last name was Hyman, a literary critic that I don't know, although the name yeah, kind of well, rings a bell. A- there's your problem right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. He held the purse strings in the family. She was making much more money than he was, but she he was like giving her an allowance and that sort of thing. And yeah. she kind of felt stifled. And I think she had problems with the parents. I don't know. Read the Wikipedia. It's fascinating. But she This did, is some sad yeah. shit where we were like, yeah, you should totally read Wikipedia. <laughs> well, That's what we've been reduced to. Yeah, exactly. That's what happens when we don't have time to prepare properly. Well, well at least I read the Wikipedia. You... <laughs> <laughs> you went that far you didn't to do even your due diligence. Wikipedia. Yeah. In my defense, I've read half of The Haunting of Hill House, which I realize it would be more impressive if I said that I read all of The Haunting of Hill House. But I didn't know really anything about Shirley Jackson and had never encountered his stuff. I feel like half of America, maybe all of America, gets assigned the lottery at some time when they're in high school or even middle school. And there's like spark notes guides to it and shit. I didn't know any about any of this stuff. And you suggested talking about this story. I'm kind of coming into it with no context at all. And basically, my experience from reading The Lottery, another story that we're going to talk about, The Summer People and half of The Haunting of Hill House, is making me realize like, oh shit, here's like a major figure of weird fiction who I have somehow managed to go almost 50 years without learning anything about. I did. I, I read Haunting of Hill House a few years ago, pretty late in my career as a weird fiction reader. You know, my impression was that she wrote kind of standard ghost stories. That's what I got. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not a fan of ghost stories as a general rule. But when I finally sat down and read that book, I saw that, uh, yes, The Haunting of Hill House is a ghost story, but it's a fantastically written, beautiful modernization of the gothic horror tale. Mm-hmm. And I do see Shirley Jackson as a master of the gothic. We can maybe talk about that. In terms of just sheer writing skill and characterization, like the, you know, the skills you want in a good storyteller, she kicks Lovecraft's ass, like big time. <laughs> um, her stories are genuinely creepy, and she doesn't even need to resort to the supernatural overtly at all. But the way she achieves the, the weird effect is very interesting in both The Summer People and The Lottery particularly The Summer People, the other story we read, which I found absolutely masterful. I actually think it's a better story than The Lottery. Good as The Lottery is, The Summer well, People... Yeah. They're both good stories, but yeah, The Summer People has a, a few more layers. Mm. Uh, the Lottery is something she wrote at the beginning of her career, I believe. It was shortly after her first book was published. The Lottery was published in The New Yorker, and I think I don't think The New Yorker ever got as much hate mail as they did. At least that was the first time they got that much mail about how horrible a story was because it was attacking some fundamental American values, right? Like the lottery is basically a very short little story about a small town, a bucolic American town that holds a lottery every year on the 27th of June. And so we're we're basically just following the proceedings, you know, the people gather on the town square or whatever. It's a contemporary story it takes place around 1930s, I'm assuming. Yep. They get together and they draw names and then 
they pick someone and that person is then stoned to death. I'm not spoiling anything, I don't think, for most people, since, as you mentioned, almost all American kids get to read this in high school. <laughs> I'd love to know what the rationale was for making this story like a standard go-to American story. It's, it's probably very good because it, it definitely introduces you to key notions such as like the dangers of rigid traditions and also the inherent hypocrisy of traditional religious institutions, maybe. I don't know. But the thing is that... As you're reading the story, you don't know what the lottery is about. And it's only at the very end that you find out that this woman, who was one of the most enthusiastic members of the crowd, of the mob or whatever at the beginning, ends up, she's the one who's been chosen and then she's going to be stoned to death. And it ends with the absolutely chilling line that the, the woman who's going to get sacrificed is screaming, it isn't fair, it isn't right, which it isn't, but she didn't say that before she was picked. Mm-hmm. So she writes, it isn't fair, it isn't right, Mrs. Hutchinson screamed, and then they were upon her. And the story ends that way. And I I can imagine at that time, that story in The New Yorker was probably pretty shocking to read. Yeah. Tessie Hutchinson was in the center of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old man Warner was saying, come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers with Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair. It isn't right, Mrs. Hutchinson screamed, and then they were upon her. Yeah, it's like a great suspense story where all the details that have been presented from the first paragraph, all of a sudden you realize why those details are there. Like children collecting stones. Well, kids engage in lots of purposeless activities, like, for example, collecting stones and piling them up. And then you suddenly start realizing like, oh, wait. And the thing snaps shut like a trap. And seeing the sentence... A stone hit her on the side of the head. It's a very simple sentence, and yet it hits hard. Yeah. It's like that's, that sentence hits like the first stone. Yeah. And again, it's just like it's probably hard for most Americans to remember not knowing the outcome of the story because it's assigned, like I said, in, in school. But you can imagine the New Yorker audience who are used to reading kind of wheat tea realist stories about vaguely unhappy bourgeois marriages. <laughs> Getting to the end and you're like, fucking human sacrifice, (laughs) Jesus. And I think one of the brilliant choices she makes is to portray the townsfolk as completely normal. The way they talk to each other, their jokes, the inside jokes between different people, the way one family calls out at another. It just feels so normal and so ordinary until the very end. Even though throughout the story, you, you get the sense that something wrong is happening. I think she's one of the great precursors of David Lynch, really. I mean, because David Lynch is a master of peeling the suburban layer and revealing the vermin underneath. Yes. And often what Lynch does to generate horror and strangeness is to have a character act completely normal in a bizarre situation. For example, in Mulholland Drive, the cowboy character, right? Who's like, he's basically a kind of assassin hitman slash, I don't know, like some kind of enforcer of bizarre Hollywood laws that are hidden from everyone and unknown to all. And we never even realize what his power is. We just suddenly get a sense that his power is immense and lethal. Yeah. And yet he's dressed as a cowboy, talks as a cowboy. So it's, it's just weird. It's just, it's almost the clown at night thing. Right? Yeah. The clown is funny during the day, but when you see the clown at night, it's not the same thing. And yet it's the same 
character, but the context changes everything. So the, the normalcy becomes strange when taken out of context. I think the story is really good on the second read, the lottery, when you know what's happening. Or in our case, that was our first read because I also knew the outcome. But you get to see these people engaging in utter evil and yet not even seem aware that what they're doing is evil. It's just necessary. And also they are acting as though they are just just so banal about it. You know, there's this kind of like, you know, the banality of evil thing, Hannah Arendt thing is going on right. there too. It's like this tradition will result in these evil things and it'll just do that as a matter of course, so long as people just follow along and continue and perpetuate the tradition. Yeah, I think that that sense of like the dark underside of the sunlit Thornton Wilder-esque Main Street USA picture is concentrated in the figure of little Davy Hutchinson, Mm. the youngest member of the Hutchinson clan. And when people are going up to take their slip of paper out of the box, you know, little Davy sort of toddles up to the box. Mr. Graves took the hand of the little boy who came willingly with him up to the box. Take a paper out of the box, Davy, Mr. Summer said. Davy put his hand into the box and laughed. Take just one paper, Mr. Summer said. Harry, you hold it for him. Mr. Graves took the child's hand and removed the folded paper from the tight fist and held it while little Dave stood next to him and looked up at him wonderingly. And that's like a cute picture of like how people behave with children. You know, you want even the littlest one to participate in some way necessarily with assistance in the civic rituals of the town. And so it's kind of cute, like, you know, helping them take a paper out of the box and everybody's going to chuckle. And then when we get to the end, just before the paragraph that I read, the one where the trap snaps closed, the previous paragraph is just two sentences. The children had stones already, and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Right. He can't hurt her. Yeah, but, you know, we're training him in, you yeah. know, and it's a thing you do, and it's cute. Little kid, like, okay, you can't really properly stone your mom. Yeah, right, right. Your fucking mother. Yeah. But here's a few pebbles so you can join in. And that's some dark shit right there. And it, it feels surreal and almost kind of impossible when you're reading it. But, of course, human sacrifice is one of the great universals <laughs> of human history. And I was reading a few snippets here and there about human sacrifice and what books I have on that topic, which are... Mostly how-to manuals. Yeah, well, yeah, there's the one, but in ancient Carthage, this is still somewhat controversial, but the evidence is pretty strong that the people of Carthage would annually sacrifice children to their god Moloch, who took the form in the city of a gigantic bronze bull statue at least it's been portrayed as a kind of bull god and and of course the romans they saw moloch as a, an avatar or a version of uh, cronus the god of time the devourer of children precisely you know some of the ancient writers some of the the ancient sources on this particular rite that happened in carthage describe it differently but in some sources it was said that the children were were willing you know, they consented, the families consented to it, and then the children consented to it. But of course, what they mean by children consenting is that children are, they're kind of like roped into it the way you get them to believe in Santa Claus, right? You're going to go into this little shaft, and then you're, you know, you're going to meet Daddy Moloch or whatever. That's, that's, <laughs> that's pretty fucking dark. Really, what would happen is they would they would fall into a fiery pit. 
as we're talking, I'm looking at the questions for review, like the copy of the lottery that I have has discussion questions for kids. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, shit. I don't want to talk about any of that stuff, although maybe that would be the weirdest thing at all. So we just completely structured our discussion around the review questions at the back of a SparkNotes guide. To, I think it'll uh, be I think it'll be really interesting for Americans to listen to us discuss the rudiments of a story they've known for decades <laughs> and like yeah, discover it for ourselves. A couple of naive Canadians are like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but uh, maybe we can maintain our weird studies street cred by focusing on human sacrifice. Right. Because um, human sacrifice is kind of interesting. Apropos what you just said about how would you rope children into participating in their own sacrifice? One way that you could do that is just as you describe by misleading the kids. Although you'd think that at least some of the parents might be kind of upset, maybe crying a little bit. Kids might wonder what the fuck is up with that. Um, but the other side of this is, I remember, I, I wish I could remember who said this, but I was reading an interview with somebody who had an unhappy childhood and became a comedy writer and was talking about his experience as a child. But I, when I read it, I responded to it strongly. I was like, I can't help but feel this must be at least somewhat universal, that when you're a kid, you were so often subject to limitations and rules that you don't understand until you've broken those rules and then you can find yourself just in a world of shit for, so far as you know, no reason whatsoever. Things just happen to you arbitrarily and sometimes you can find the most severe things happening to you for no reason that you can understand. And, you know, as you grow older, you become an adult, you understand the rules and the boundaries much better, you understand the causes and effects of things that happen to you much better. And you also understand the gravity of the different offenses. So like when you're a little kid, just having dessert taken away from you might seem like the end of the world. Whereas when you're an adult, you realize that, you know, death is like way, way worse than not being able to eat a bowl of ice cream. Um, really? But, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not sure about that, actually, now that I'm thinking of it. But, but the point is, and I'm, he didn't go into all of this. I just remember him saying that, you know, when I was a kid, if somebody had just said like, well, now it's time to kill you. Now you got to die. He'd been like, oh, shit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know? And I was just like, yeah. Uh, when you're real young, you just sort of like are in a world where, for all you know, somebody can be like, yeah, time to go and jump into the uh, the mouth of the brazen god and burn to death. Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay. All right. I, I guess. Yeah. But even if we're talking about the process by which children are trained in a particular society to participate in sacrifice, not to be the sacrifices, but in this case, Davy Hutchinson is encouraged to perform the sacrifice. He might be the sacrifice next year, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah. for now he gets to throw his little pebbles. He can't hurt her with the pebbles, but he gets to throw them just to enact what he will, you know, there's this, um, the cycle of abuse thing too, like, one character that I found fascinating was Old Man Warner in the story, who represents the kind of status quo, the rigid traditionalist who basically is railing against those other villages that have given up the lottery, that have abandoned it. And he's like, he calls them a crazy pack of fools, and they're listening to the young, and the young don't know anything. I'll, I'll just read the part. It says, Old Man Warner snorted, pack of crazy fools, he said, listening to the young folks, nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back living in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live that way for a while. Used to be a saying about lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chickweed and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. 
bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. So he's angry because the people around him, they're still performing the lottery every year, but nobody remembers why. And it seems like the original reason was some kind of like... Uh, propitiation. Pro- propitiation to the corn god to guarantee like a, a rich yield, like a good harvest. And of course, that was very common throughout history. But in this case, the, the old man, he's angry because the people have forgotten the reasoning behind the ritual. It's like people used to say that. People don't even say this anymore. So what keeps the tradition going, even though it's grounding in some kind of magical or religious, as horrible as it is, process, is gone. Like, how, how how does it keep perpetuating itself? I think she sardonically answers that question later on in the story when she writes, although the villagers had forgotten the ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. I love that line. Because to me, it yeah. points to the, this is something Zizek is big on, the kind of tacit enjoyment that always accompanies the performance of rituals of this sort. That the lottery exists not to impose some evil process on a group of people, but to license evil urges that exist in these people already. That's why they don't need a reason to do the ritual. They just need license to do it. And I find that that's a very dark, dark truth, quote unquote, that Shirley Jackson is laying out for us in the story. Well, it actually gets back to something we were saying at the beginning about magic, that even if you don't believe in the metaphysical dimension of magic and you're just thinking of it as like kind of skillful tricks to psych yourself out, to act in ways that break your habits, that break you out of your conventions and allow you to a wider field of possibility, even if you do that, you can find yourself able to leverage surprising power on your surroundings. And... It's astonishing how much even just the act of giving yourself permission, truly giving yourself permission to do something, is important. It's interesting if you look at exercises um, like the Gurdjieff people. Like there's a, there's a book by Seymour Ginsburg called Gurdjieff Unveiled, an overview and introduction to the teaching. This book has some pretty nuts and bolts exercises, which if practiced, I suppose, will lead to exactly the kind of freedoms that we're talking about or that extra degree of freedom, like suddenly becoming aware of how much our behavior is habitually limited. Mm -hmm. Fourth way, I think, is the generic term for this kind of spiritual path, for Gurdjieff's spiritual path, the fourth way. But in any event, so here's one from uh, lesson two section of this book, an exercise in attention. Let us examine the work on attention. Here's a suggestion. Let us try and experiment as we read or listen to the rest of this material. Place your attention on your right hand. If you accept what is suggested, accept it freely. Choose to do it, not because it is suggested, but because you have decided, of your own free will and accord, to do the experiment. You are quite free to accept or to refuse. If you choose to place your attention on your right hand, try to relax at the same time. If you have accepted to do this experiment, you have by now become conscious of a certain sensation in your hand. You sense your hand holding something, the book perhaps. Then you begin to sense the weight of your hand, and you become conscious that it is attached to and is a part of your body, and that it is part of what you're used to calling I. Remain relaxed and attentive, and continue having the sensation in and of your hand while continuing to read or listen. And 
it goes on, and it's really interesting that this is the exercise that Chapman, in one of his books, describes practicing for several days, where the idea is that you would walk about, and at all times you would try to keep your consciousness not totally necessarily like focused with adamantine concentration, but like at least lightly attentive of your right hand. And apparently doing this for several days has mind-blowing profound effects. I've never tried it, but I find that plausible. What would happen if you just took something that you take for granted, that you devote no attention to whatsoever, and just decided always to pay attention to it? And that would be a great example of using a kind of skillful mean to break out of a conditioned pattern of thought. But what I find really interesting about the setup for that is just the emphasis, the repetitive emphasis on giving yourself license to do this. Right. And this is getting back to what you were saying, that, you know, what's really key is not just the doing of the thing, but the license to do the thing. And I don't know, maybe we're going to hear it from fourth way devotees who are like, you guys are pig ignorant, which is absolutely true. But I wonder if this is a part of the Gurdjieff method. This idea is like, in order to kind of unlock these potentialities, you have to begin by choosing them and uh, licensing them in a certain way. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, and I totally know what you mean. I'm not sure if if I'd want to apply it to what's going on in the lottery because I think what's going on there is that what's being licensed is that part of people that doesn't choose. The instinctive, the id mm. is being given license. So the Freudian id is that bestial part of us that's like a, a monster, I guess, a kind of beast inside us. And in these particular traditions it is given license to express itself to so i that's that's how but, i was but seeing you know it. but then it gets real tricky i mean like i've never committed a murder but i've read accounts of like people who've done crimes right mm-hmm. and accounts of like how those crimes are processed in the legal system and some of the defenses that are raised up against prosecution and of course mental incapacity is a, a big one This actually gets back to something we were talking about a while ago. People who have affairs and find themselves like almost like a different person. Yeah. Which I'm sure that's a very unsatisfying explanation for the partner that's been cheated on, but nevertheless maybe has a certain reality to the person who has done the cheating. Like, okay, I could imagine a cheater saying it was like I was a different person. And it's just sort of like, yeah, but... How to phrase this? You had, no, I think I know what you're getting at. I think you're right. Absolutely. That on some level, there's always a, cho- a choice. There's Exactly. On some yeah. level, there's always a choice. So you found yourself helpless against getting in the pants of this attractive stranger, but you didn't find yourself helpless against beating them and robbing them right. or against committing a bank robbery or murdering somebody. This becomes a thing with people who commit murder. They say, like, I was not in my right mind. Yeah, but you killed that guy, but at the same time, you still had presence of mind enough to do something that shows you're trying to not get caught. Yes, exactly. So you have to wonder, is there not always some degree of choice, even in the the most heated act of passion? Well, now you know what I mean? Yeah, now we're getting into the free will thing, which is quite complex and, and labyrinthine. But, no, but, I think we could dust off free will in about 20 minutes. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it does come – I mean, in the courts – I mean, from what I understand, it seems like a lot of it has to do with proving if you're not going to be tried for a crime on the basis that you weren't in your 
right mind when the deed was performed, it is because you were under the impression that reality was different. For example, if you thought person X was actually an alien or demon and you actually thought that, you chose to kill him, you still committed the crime, but because you were working off of false ideas, you're not responsible for the crime as we understand it, which is that you killed Mr. X and not an alien or demon. So you still have in the courts always this sense that there's a choice made, but the choice has to be based on reality. And that's where the arguments lie. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, I'm probably wrong, but that's my general impression. So if you look at something like uh, ritual murder in a society, it's funny because Shirley Jackson does hint that there's choice happening here. That that yeah. the, the license does it doesn't give license to the beast. It gives license to people to choose to follow the beast. So, the fact that other villages are giving up the lottery and people are kind of talking about it in this light way before as things are underway, and they're like, you know, the North Village have given up the lottery, and then Old Man Warner has to come in and reassert the law and the tradition, and then people are like yeah, they fall back in line. It shows that there is a choice going on. And that ultimately, we're not just puppets to these forces, but there always is a mm-hmm. choice. So I think, yeah, I, I think that uh, the Gurdjieff example does apply, interestingly, to this particular scenario here we're talking about. So, JF. Yeah. This story was published in 1948, just after World War II. What other cultural or historical events, attitudes, institutions, or rituals might Jackson be satirizing in this story? Right. <laughs> That's a leading question. It's just one of those spark notes. Questions. Well, it's a great way for Americans to, you know, unburden themselves of the passions described in the story by saying, oh, she's talking about Auschwitz. You yeah. Know? I mean, American history is filled with this type. I mean, the whole white man's burden thing, right? In the 19th century, the genocide of Native Americans yeah. was almost a kind of ritual. It was the idea of manifest destiny was a spiritual kind of almost religious idea that licensed the killing of all these people. Right. So I don't think we need to go to Germany or Austria to find the reasoning of her story there. And interestingly... And and actually, I find the historicism implied in that really irritating because it's just sort of like, to me, the story becomes much more interesting if it becomes about exactly that licensing framework that we need in order to do things. Yeah, exactly. To do anything, to do any act of will, it only becomes really conspicuous when the act of will is monstrous. Right. And there's an effort in overcoming our inbuilt reluctance to kill fellow human beings. Right. Are inbuilt. That, that's where the question lies: Is do we have an? Well, inbuilt? this is uh, this is interesting. I shouldn't say inbuilt because that's sort of begging the question. But put it this way: There's a certain amount of evidence that human beings actually find it difficult to kill. That killing other human beings is an exceptional condition, and that human beings need to develop special forms of rituals, special forms of socialization. You have to do special stuff in order to get yourself able to kill. There's a book that I've been kind of poking at and I've been meaning to, you know, like get the book and read it properly. Uh, It's called Violence, a Micro-Sociological Theory by Randall Collins. And it's a large, exhaustive book published by Princeton University Press that actually really kind of proceeds from the idea that violence is an exceptional state 
which isn't to say it isn't ubiquitous, because it is, of human-on-human violence is omnipresent, but he spends a lot of time really detailing the tiny things that people do in order, including the most seemingly conscienceless hitmen, like mafia hitmen, uh, the shit that they have to do in order to be able to kill. And so it becomes a really interesting question. What psychological adjustments do you have to perform in order to unlock that part you know uh, what i mean uh, yeah yeah another great book on that topic is james hillman's terrible love of war which is great um no, we should talk about that sometime we did talk about it in the show unboxing we did but it could come up again because there's a lot in that we book did? it's really oh, good shit i don't even remember that that's because i was talking about it because i read it but like yeah uh, it was just in the context of the gods right remember we we're talking about oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah okay i i would agree with what you just said that in order to perform violence to kill another human, there needs to be some kind of ritual that ostracizes the victim before it happens, that makes them other, right? I mean, and that's just Darwinian evolutionary psychology, really. I mean, uh, chimpanzees ritualize their intraspecies violence because it's important for the group to maintain coherence. So you could see how humans would be subject to the same kind of evolutionary patterns in the sense that the default is cohesion and to perform an act of violence against another, that other needs to be ostracized from the cohesive group that I consider myself part of. And, and it's true that even like professional killers need to have some sort of process by which a person is declared to be worthy of being killed or, or, you know, deserving of it. I mean, if violence was just, like breathing, <laughs> we would have killed yeah. each other a long time ago, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, violence is really interesting to me. Partly this is coming from just the experience, the very weird experience. I can I can never do justice to just how weird it is to climb into a ring and have an opponent on the other side of the ring, especially when you first do it. At the beginning, the idea of like, oh, shit. He's throwing punches at me, you know, especially like a kind of middle class munchie cake like myself. You know, I don't live a life of violence. And it's just like, oh, oh, dear, (laughs) he's punching me. Yeah. But there's something interesting about violence. And in boxing, it's heavily formalized. We talked about this in the boxing episode. It is ringed around with prohibitions and rules The very act of putting it in a ring kind of confines it and enacts it as a ritual, if not a spectacle, and that changes it. It contains the violence and in a certain sense makes it safe, even though, of course, boxing is never entirely safe. But reading about violence in its wilder and unsublimated forms, you know, violence is probably the great other of the Western intellect, at least in the modern age. There's very few people who want to talk about violence as anything other than the thing to be eliminated from our lives. To the degree that we understand violence, for example, war, it's to understand what are the roots of war, the causes of war, so that we can avoid it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or what are the effects of war on populations so that we can heal them or that we can help them. Uh, recover from their injuries, right. uh, psychological or physical. But the idea of looking at violence the way like the ancient Greeks looked at violence, 
which is to say with an awareness that it's terrible, but being able to look at it and to see it as something that is part of the human and thereby something also to be celebrated, something that under certain circumstances can be glorious, like the, I mean, you can't read the Iliad without a feeling that there can be nothing more glorious than to see your enemy perish under your sword blows. You know, an idea that is about as alien from our way of thinking as is possible to be. And to the well, extent I mean, that we action movies are still very common. I mean, we still have that in our storytelling. Of course we still yeah. have that. Yeah. And we still have soldiers who do this stuff for us. Right. When we say us, I'm talking about the civilian population. Yeah, we still enact the violence through spectacle, through fiction. But we don't know what to do with it as a thing that actually exists in our lives, except to treat it as this other, where the question is always, how do we make it go away? The problem is that we see it as external to us rather than internal to us. Jung's great message was that the shadow is in us, so the violence is in us. If, if we pretend that it exists outside of the psyche, out in the world as a problem to fix, we're never going to fix it because then we're repressing our own violence and therefore perpetuating it or letting it be revisited upon for future generations, which is a big theme. I mean, I don't think you're trying to say that we should reinstate the lottery as a way of like <laughs> coming to terms with our inner well, maybe I am. <laughs> but uh, this, is, this touches on the gothic quality of Shirley Jackson's writing, which I find to be very present in all three texts that we've read. The Gothic is really about that. The Gothic is about the violence done by the crimes of our ancestors that continue today, that, continue, that, yeah. that are perpetuated in the now. Uh. And the goal of the Gothic hero is always to free themselves from the grip of the past, right? Hmm. There's this great quote by Nietzsche I copied right before we met today. He writes, The eternal becoming as a lying puppet play in beholding which man forgets himself. The actual distraction which disperses the individual to the four winds, the endless stupid game which the great child time plays before us and with us. The heroism of truthfulness consists in one day ceasing to be the toy it plays with. And that seems to be exactly what's going on in a Shirley Jackson story, which is you're just hoping someone wakes up from this nightmare that people are just taking for granted and living out. And in the case of the lottery, there is no hero, right? The, the hero is, is she's a bit of a Johnny come lately at the end where she, once she's picked, then she says it's unfair, it's unjust. She realizes when she's the one who's going to be sacrificed. Unfortunately, it's too late. But this perpetuation of cycles of violence from one generation to another, constantly being sublimated, not even sublimated, but concealed or contained in the form of various traditions, which are fundamentally brutal and cruel, is kind of the great theme, I think, of this story, if not of other stories by Shirley Jackson. So let's talk about the summer people. I loved that story. Mm -hmm. I, thought it was, I thought it was so cool. And you found that, I'm guessing, from looking at the PDF you sent me, that that was in the Weird Anthology by the Vandermeers. Yeah, that's right. Which yeah. is such a good anthology. Yeah. 
I, I was actually a little bit surprised they included it just because I haven't looked at the anthology. I know many of the stories in it, but I was surprised they included it because it's very subtle in its weirdness. And yet it's absolutely a weird tale. Shall we describe what it's about? Yeah, tell us the story. Tell us the story, Phil, and then we'll we'll know what we're working with. Okay. There's not much of a story. There's a elderly couple, or you get the sense, you know, they're maybe in their 60s, the Allisons, Mr. and Mrs. Allison. And they have a country house, a country cottage. And we don't know exactly where it is, but we get the distinct impression it's somewhere like maybe Connecticut or upstate New York. They live in New York City. It's definitely in New England. She does mention New England. Yeah. Yeah. And it's super quaint. It's a beautiful cottage and a beautiful little unspoiled lake and unspoiled little chunk of land. The nearest neighbor lives three miles away. Once a week, they'll take their rattle trap car into town to buy groceries and chat with the locals who are all picturesque, hardy Yankee types, the kind of people who are always described by journalists who go up to New Hampshire to cover the primaries as flinty. <laughs> And so they live a life of conspicuous charm and happiness. They really love living in their summer cottage. Now, the summer cottage doesn't have electricity and it doesn't have plumbing, so they have an outhouse. Sanitary city people became stolid and matter-of-fact about their back house. In the first two years, they had gone through all the standard vaudeville and magazine jokes about back houses. And by now, when they no longer had frequent guests to impress... They had subsided to a comfortable security, which made the back house, as well as the pump and the kerosene, an indefinable asset to their summer life. Just that little detail kind of, I guess, something I'm getting at about Shirley Jackson's style is just how good she is at giving you little details that just seem to tell the whole story. Like in the lottery, it's little Davy. And here it's just sort of like their comfortable accession to the necessities of having an outhouse, having to pump their own water, having to light their place with kerosene because there's no electricity. And the, the, the quaint pleasures of living in a substandard situation, right? They choose right. to light with kerosene. They choose to have a back house. They could, have right. ha they could have had a toilet built or plumbing brought in, but this is all part of the experience of being at the cottage, right? Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> as, as, uh, as Canadians, I'm sure this spoke to us of, you know, cottage life. It's just sort of like, well, yeah. Yeah. Cottages. Um, anyway, that that's neither here nor there. I, I, I should probably ease up on all the Canadian references because that's like the most Canadian thing ever. It's to constantly be sort of high-fiving yourself for being Canadian. Some lame shit. Or apologizing for doing so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, which I just did. I'm just like, I might as well just be doing this podcast wearing a toque. <laughs> I am wearing a toque. Oh, you are? Oh, shit, that's right. <laughs> You're right. There is no escape. God damn it. Anyway, so they're creatures of habit. They always go back to New York City right at Labor Day, and they always come back to their country house in May or sometime in May. But they're you know very regular. And as they get older, there's less and less reason for them to be in New York City. They have fewer and fewer living friends, and the many impositions of the city on their lives become more and more onerous or obnoxious. And one year they say, hey, why not stick around a little bit longer? It gets beautiful here. The autumn is really beautiful in New England. Why don't we stick around at our summer cottage past Labor Day? 
And so they just decide they're going to do that. And so they start mentioning it to the country people who they interact with when they go into town. And these country people have a weird resistance to this idea. They just don't quite approve. The first time it's going to the... What is it? The hardware store? Mr. The grocers. Hardware st- the grocers. The grocers. Yeah. yeah, the grocer, Mr. Babcock. So Mrs. Allison says, it isn't as though we had anything to take us back to the city, she said to Mr. Babcock, her grocer. We might as well enjoy the country while we can. Nobody ever stayed at the lake past Labor Day before, Mr. Babcock said. He was putting Mrs. Allison's groceries into a large cardboard carton, and he stopped for a minute to look reflectively into a bag of cookies. Nobody, he added. Yeah. (laughs) And I love that. Again, it's subtle. Just that repetition of the word nobody. And no one is going to say why they, even that they think it's a bad idea for them to stay, they just keep saying, well, nobody does that. Yeah. And And again and again, like everybody they talk to is like, Hmm, never heard of that before. And before they're talking to people afterwards, and the, the word's already gone round. It's like, I heard you were staying uh, past Labor Day. Nobody's ever done that before. You know, like everyone already knows. And it's yeah. it's like this big deal. And yet nobody comes out and says why it's a big deal. No. Nobody even expresses alarm. Do you want to continue? They spend the rest of their day shopping in town for the things they need to stay on, as the locals call it. You're staying on? And Mrs. Allison gets back to the cottage feeling a little weird about it. But she's yeah. so far, she's just being, oh, they're just, she actually has this very dismissive comment she makes to her husband. Like, they're so, uh, I don't remember what she says, but these New England folk, you know, they're so caught up in their ways. or Right. Some of the, something of the sort. Like You can feel the alienation already happening. Yeah. But you go on doing a good job telling a story. Well, you you realize like that there's a thousand and one little things that separate these city people from the country people who live there year round. Not least of which the repeated thought, well, you can't get angry. Uh, yeah. You know, as, as they start being refused requests, well, you can't be angry because country ways aren't the same as city ways. So they keep having to kind of like restrain their temper as for example the kerosene man the guy who comes with a big drum of fuel for them to light their house stops by their place and just flatly refuses to bring them any more kerosene and he never exactly explains it and he says uh he says he orders some for the summer and he's only got enough yeah. for the summer he's like thought you folks would be leaving he said we're staying on another month mrs allison said brightly the weather was so nice and it seemed like that's what they told me the man said, can't give you no oil, though. Well, what do you mean? Mrs. Allison raised her eyebrows. We were just going to keep on with our regular after Labor Day. The man said, I don't get so much oil myself after Labor Day. <laughs> and he's yeah. just mulishly obstinate about this. He's not budging on it. And, you know, she has to control her temper. But it's at this moment that they really start feeling like, I don't know if besieged is the right word, but all of a sudden they start, um, how to put it? Ostracized, rejected. Yeah, they, they, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, you almost get the feeling like all this time, like as summer people, you're there on sufferance. Like yeah. people let you be there, but the moment that's withdrawn, all of a sudden there's this profound feeling of weird alienation. This is a truth about cottaging and all that 
Very true. My dad owns a cottage up about an hour and a half away from here in the wilds of Quebec. You know, there's a huge gap between the the locals and the cottagers. And of course, the locals welcome the cottage. They bring business to the area and stuff. But there's a contract there. It's an unwritten contract. But it's like, you're not one of us. (laughs) You know, at least... You know, that feeling has been expressed before in my uh, vicinity, for sure. Oh, really? How how, how so? My dad hired a guy to do some work on his cottage, and the guy kind of disappeared. Didn't finish the work, even though my dad had paid him. And so uh, the guy started to avoid him. It's a small little village, so he started to avoid my father. And my father was trying to find out what was going on from other... And everybody else was protecting this guy because he's a local, right? Yeah. So that sort of thing. Yeah, like, you know, closing ranks yeah. around somebody in the community or a shared secret or whatever. Yeah. But it doesn't take much, you you know. And basically what happens in the story is, like, they just do something wrong. They just have violated something that they don't even realize is a violation of a community norm. And it starts to have not just bad consequences but weird consequences. So, like, one of the details is that they you know one of their chief pleasures in life is getting a letter from their son who lives in Chicago who fills him in on all the just the boring details of their son's family's life and the letter doesn't come the time stretches on and they're not getting a letter from their son they're not getting a letter and they're not getting a letter and then finally they get a letter and at the point where they get the letter, not only have they been refused kerosene, they can't get their groceries delivered anymore. And then they find that the car doesn't work. Mr. Allison's like, okay, well, now I got to go into the village to get groceries. Oh, shit, now the car doesn't work. Like, you almost sort of get the feeling of, like the wall's closing in on them a little bit or something is closing in on them. There's some kind of indefinable feeling of things tightening around them. And at the same time, like, they're... You know, pissed off because they're not getting a letter. And then at the moment they realize a car doesn't work, they get a letter. And they read it, and it's clearly in the handwriting of their son. And he's talking about all the stuff he normally talks about, but there's just something off about the letter. And Mrs. Allison just can't quite bring herself to believe that he really wrote it, except they can't quite wrap their head around it. What's different about this letter? They can't quite figure it out. Rereading the letter, I reread this story this morning. The one thing that's kind of odd about it is this weirdly insistent tone in it that they should stay. That they should stay. Yeah, yeah. That they should stay past Labor Day. And he says it a couple of times. But, you know, at no point does anybody say, wow, it's weird that he's so insistent upon that point. All Mr. and Mrs. Allison say is, like, it just doesn't seem like it's right. him. Especially Mrs. Allison, primarily. Yeah. And one of the right. uh, the, the letter does end with uh, Jerry, the son, just kind of casually mentioning that so-and-so just died. And he, he'd always been very interested in Mr. Allison and what he was up to. Uh, tell dad that Mr. Carruthers, I think, yeah, has died. She also mentions that the envelope has more dirty fingerprints on it than usual. Like a lot of yes, people have, that's right. have, have fingered this letter. Let's just add another layer to that. Because as this is happening, she's also starting to feel like nature's turning on them. Yeah. Halfway through the day, it's still super sunny out. And she's making a pie. Shirley Jackson writes, Mrs. Allison hurried with her pie. Twice she went to the window to glance at the sky to see if there were clouds coming up. The room seemed unexpectedly dark, and she herself felt in the state of tension that precedes a thunderstorm. But both times when she looked, the sky was clear and serene, smiling indifferently 
down on the Allison's summer cottage as well as on the rest of the world. And I love, I love that because she feels this tension. And soon enough, there will be a storm. The story yeah. ends with a storm gathering over the lake. So that, again, you have this gothic touch where nature and culture, so to speak, become united in this weird force that's completely outside the control of the protagonists. And towards the end of the story, just to build on that, Jackson writes, The rest of the day went quickly. After a lunch of crackers and milk, the Allisons went to sit outside on the lawn, but their afternoon was cut short by the gradually increasing storm clouds that came up over the lake to the cottage, so that it was dark as evening by four o'clock. The storm delayed, however, as though in loving anticipation of the moment it would break over the summer cottage, and there was an occasional flash of lightning, but no rain. These little Mm. touches, which are old gothic tropes right it was a dark and stormy night really work because they come at the tail end of all this inter character tension that's been building and all of a sudden it's manifesting in nature itself and in the letter from the sun she's like that letter has to come from jerry who else they couldn't have made up that they couldn't have written that letter in town but it's the alienation is so total that even her son to her feels completely other and strange they have nothing left it, to me, it's like, remember that thing that I told, wrote about, about the, we talked about that the first time we met? The old scenario, you're walking in a dark alleyway and there's a corner and something's coming around the corner and it casts a shadow on the wall. You can see the shadow, but you can't see the object casting it. And the shadow looks like a kind of devil. But then when the creature or whatever it is turns the corner, you see that it's a little cat. It's like an old cartoon cliche, right? Well, this yeah. story's all about that. We never get to find out. The story ends before anything happens. But the yep. horror has already been revealed, you know, like suppose, yeah. suppose for a second that the people of the town are just pissed off at them and they have no ill will. They, they're not going to do anything. The car just broke down. They're being assholes, but they're not planning to murder anybody. Suppose they even tampered with the car, but just to teach them a lesson about staying on past Labor Day. We'll even grant yeah. them that. The horror still remains because the horror is like the shadow of the demon cast on the wall. Yeah, that's nice. Because that's the real, the revelation that destroys Mrs. Allison, the revelation is the abyss that has always existed between her and the people around there that she saw as almost her playthings, part of the playground she went to in the summer. And what's revealed is their total indifference to their plight because they transgressed. But that abyss in itself becomes so total for her that it includes her son who took too much time writing to who doesn't really care, who's writing out of just a sense of duty to his parents, wouldn't really miss them maybe if something were to happen. You know, like it's just that the horror of indifference, of indifference between humans and in the indifference of nature towards humans becomes clear to her. And that's more horrific than anything that could have happened next kind of thing. Yeah. 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 This is a rare story because, you know, we've all had the experience of like a really strong feeling of foreboding. And sometimes that feeling of foreboding bears fruit and something actually bad happens. And sometimes it just remains a weird feeling. Like, you know, I don't drink coffee in the middle of the afternoon because if I do, I reliably get this feeling that something terrible is going to happen and then nothing does. But it must be very difficult to write a story about the feeling of foreboding and not the event that is foreboded, that is being foreshadowed. I mean, in telling a story, the feeling of foreboding exists only to set up whatever horrible denouement is going to be the point of the story. But here you don't get that. It's all about that mood. Right. Exactly. And the mood is the horror, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, Which is why it 
absolutely belongs in that anthology. I would say it's one of the best weird fiction pieces I've ever read. I just can't get over the economy of her prose and her skillful, Mm -hmm. almost kind of sarcastic tone that she uses. It's really effective. And I was truly shaken when I finished it last night. It really chilled me in a great way. Yeah, love it. I want to read the ending because it's so gnomic it's so odd like the way the story ends okay first they get this letter it's from their son but it doesn't seem like it's from their son and then their phone goes dead and then the storm is gathering over their cabin and at the moment the story ends you get the feeling that that's when the storm breaks upon their cabin and so the way it ends the allisons are sitting hand in hand together in their dark cabin waiting and they're listening to the radio. So it says the Allisons could hear far off echoing across the lake the saxophones in the New York dance band wailing over the water, the flat voice of the girl vocalist going inexorably out into the clean country air. Even the announcer speaking glowingly of the virtues of razor blades was no more than an inhuman voice sounding out from the Allisons' cottage and echoing back as though the lake and the hills and the trees were returning it unwanted. Yeah. During one pause between commercials, Mrs. Allison turned and smiled weakly at her husband. I wonder if we're supposed to do anything, she said. No, Mr. Allison said, consideringly. I don't think so. Just wait. Mrs. Allison caught her breath quickly, and Mr. Allison said, under the trivial melody of the dance band beginning again, The car had been tampered with, you know. Even I could see that. Mrs. Allison hesitated a minute and then said very softly, I suppose the phone wires were cut. I imagine so. After a while, the dance music stopped and they listened attentively to a news broadcast, the announcer's rich voice telling them breathlessly of a marriage in Hollywood, the latest baseball scores, the estimated rise in food prices during the coming week. He spoke to them in the summer cottage, quite as though they still deserved to hear news of a world that no longer reached them, except through the fallible batteries on the radio, which were already beginning to fade, almost as though they still belonged, however tenuously, to the rest of the world. (laughs) That's not quite the end, but that's basically where we end. Them just waiting, just waiting for whatever it is. And I love the detail Mrs. Elson's asking, is there anything we're supposed to do? He's like, no, I don't think so. We keep coming back to fairy, but fairy is such a useful figure to mention because it's so nonspecific and it just embraces such a variety of stories that have to do with finding yourself somewhere you shouldn't be and the consequences from that. You can imagine the thing where you stray into fairy and maybe you even have a way back, like imagine that you have some enchanted object Or maybe a fairy told you, yes, you can come to fairy, but you have to be gone by 12 or something like that. And yet, of course, in fairy tales, you always break the rules. They never do what they're told. And there's always some kind of consequence. And this has that kind of fairy tale quality. It's just like they're able to be in this realm that by the end is revealed as really strange. Like we don't know what the deal is with this, but we know it's weird. And they break the rule which is they have to leave by Labor Day, and they don't. And you almost get the feeling, it's almost as if the fact that they were there at all exists only by grace of like a little portal, like a little opening, uh, uh, an aperture 
that has opened up between the real world, the world of New York City and dance bands and news readers advertising razor blades um, and the world of the cottage. And what is happening at the end of this story is that aperture is just fading. It's closing up and you're seeing the last dying emanations from the world that we've left, but we're being cut off from. And what happens next? Who the fuck knows? But like, I love the detail of the dying radio batteries and the sound of this aggressively trivial music and celebrity news, like the most trivial thing possible, that these are the last fading tokens as the last possibility of exiting through this portal disappears. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. You know, another myth theme in the fairy tale tradition is the familiar that suddenly becomes unfamiliar, right? Yeah. The dryad that turns to a hag. There's that great scene in Lost Highway, David Lynch's film Lost Highway, yeah. where Bill Pullman is in bed and his wife is trying to comfort him and he's stressed out. And she runs her hand down his back and all of a sudden you just see him kind of react like that's not her hand. And she turn, he turns around and he sees her, but she has the face of the the mystery man or whatever his name is. She has the face yeah. of this ugly dude. Um, Richard Blake, <laughs> of all people. I think his name, that actor, yeah. Richard Blake. or Ro- No, Ro- Robert Blake. Robert Blake, right. The, the familiar that suddenly becomes unfamiliar. And that's exactly what the story shows us. It's the uncanny, right? The word Heimlich, which means homely in German, turning to unheimlich, which means unhomely. They're very close. In, in English, the word homely can mean grotesque or home-like, right? Like right. Etym- etymologically. So those things that are most familiar to you and dearest to you are the things that you break the rules with at your peril. Because if you overstep a boundary, if you break the contract, if you wake up in the middle of the night and see your clown doll in the corner, all of a sudden the thing you cherish the most during the day reveals its own alien depths. And that's what happens at the end is that this whole quaint little picturesque world, which they treated as their own kind of backyard for years, is suddenly asserting its own agency and um, mm. and showing them aspects of itself, which it had mercifully kept hidden until then. And now they yeah. have to face the real capital R. And what happens next, as you say, we, who the fuck knows? But it doesn't matter because it's happened already. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the virtual, right? Right. I mean, that, this is a story about that which is virtually present in that sort of Delizian sense that we keep bringing up in this mm-hmm. show. I remember something you said as one of my favorite things you've said on this show. We we're talking about violence. This is back in the show we did when we were getting sideways on some brews. Right, I was up in the at, summer. When I was up in Ottawa, yeah. And we were talking about what happens when, you know, you're at a restaurant and there's a couple in the table next to you and they start fighting and there's almost like this electric current that passes around the room or when a fist fight breaks out in a bar or something like that and i remember you saying a god has entered the fray yeah i love that because that's a figure for that feeling of like the thing that has entered the room that is not quite tangible but everything has reoriented itself around that invisible thing that current of energy yeah And not only has it entered, it has entered in a way that shows you that it was always there. Exactly. And that's what's so horrific. How could I not have seen what was happening the whole time? And that's a very common form of a dream is where 
you dream something that has been there all the time and only now you see it. And I think that, I think that happens in life as well. Something happens and all of a sudden you realize it was all building to this. It was all building up to this. I talked about that in the context of meeting my wife, which was, you know, meeting Leslie was one of the great moments of my life. But you could imagine any number of horrible turns, but, you know, bad news that when you get it, it seems to come out of the blue. But you realize in the moment that from the first moment it was ordained in a way. I think there's a line yeah. from Marcus Aurelius. I can't remember it, but it's like from the beginning of time, your fate was already woven somehow. It was already, and that doesn't, yeah. that's at the virtual level. It doesn't mean that your fate can't change, but that every revelation of the event includes its own past, which then supersedes or overwrites whatever other pasts were competing with it before. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. very strange and that's a whole other topic. But I find that the way she transforms the setting and the, I think the great protagonist, not protagonist, but the, the star of this particular story is the setting itself. Yeah. The way that it transmogrifies and changes and turns from something bucolic, harmless, quaint to something monstrous and alien and strange. It's done so painstakingly through tiny little steps through the story that by the end, you're just as surprised as the protagonists are to look around and notice that you're you're really really not in Kansas or New England or whatever anymore, you know, right, somewhere else. Exactly. And it's funny because what we were talking about before, that trope of like the dirty underside, the you know, Norman Rockwell, Thornton Wilder Americana and then, you know, the dirty underside of that, the David Lynch thing where you see at the beginning of Blue Velvet, the camera dwelling on the red roses and the impossibly blue sky and the white picket fence and then the camera bends down and goes deep into the grass under the ground and then you see these bugs crawling around and that's like the classic image of that you know what lies beneath thing and that trope can actually be a real cliche that congratulates the viewer for being so very enlightened as to understand what it's saying about the world we live in and it would be possible to do a reading of the lottery where that's all it is, is a kind of what lies beneath kind of thing. But actually reading the lottery in conjunction with the summer people is good because you realize that what's really going on is kind of what you just expressed. That sort of sense of like a past that's always been latent as a kind of an ungerminated seed in something that only becomes active at the end, at which point it almost sort of like overwrites the history of everything up until that point. It's like the emergence of something. Yeah. It's not what lies beneath. It's the emergence of that which always already was. And yet which we could not acknowledge. Yes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the gothic in a nutshell. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.